Well, I want to invite you this morning to turn, if you would, to the book of Isaiah and the ninth chapter, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and then we'll zero in in particular on verse 6, but just to kind of put it in context, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom. For her who was in anguish, in earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at battle at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And let us, let us pray. Father, thank you for Holy Scripture. Thank you for this section in the Old Testament that reveals the great and glorious birth of the person of Christ. And I pray these moments that you would assist me and help me by your Holy Spirit just to bring forth your word in a way that is, is pleasing to thyself. And, and also, Father, in a way that is truly helpful to our, our hearts and to our minds as we consider uh, the glory of the incarnation and the the purpose of it insofar as we are concerned as Christian believers. So I, I pray that your precious holy word would go forth in power and be glorified and that you by your blessed spirit would awaken our hearts to um, the preciousness of having the Lord of glory as the eternal savior of our souls. And so we commit our time to thee and we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, last Lord's day, uh, our attention was focused on a very short text that in very short compass, I think, uh, conveys the reason uh, for the birth of the person of Christ. She will bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. Very, very helpful text as to why he was born and why it is that he came, he came into this world. Um, and it's an eternal glorious thing to be saved, to be persuaded that one is saved from the eternal wrath of God on the basis of the death of his son. But that's exactly the case for those of us who have trusted him as our savior. But this salvation in Christ is also glorious because of what we are saved unto and because of what Christ becomes unto every Christian. 
Christian. And one of the richest and I think most precious declarations of that, that is what Christ has become to us, is found embedded in this prophetic reality of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. To repeat it again, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And so this is what he becomes uh, to all Christians who are in a living relationship with him. Uh, the, the text is found in this broader section, chapter 9 and verses 1 through 7, which could be titled The, the Birth and the Reign of the, the Prince of Peace. So this is, the, this is the same child that's referred to in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, it's the same child that's referred to prophetically back in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And the great emphasis in both of these texts is that a child is born. Now you notice in the New American Standard, you may not have a New American Standard version of the Bible, but... Um, it presents this as being a future occurrence, for a child will be born to us. This term born in Hebrew is actually what is called the perfect tense, has reference to completed action. Um, so other major translations are, for unto us a child is born, rather than a child will be born, a child is born, as though it had already happened, as though, as though it had already taken place hundreds of years uh, before the fact. And, and I think that is significant, at least in part, because it emphasizes the, the uniqueness of the child, because the language employed here doesn't, impl doesn't apply to any human king that was born up to this particular point in time. The description we have in chapter 9 and verse 6 a child has been born to us, but there is no child that had been born that fits the description that is found in verse 6. And also, therefore, because it's presented like that, it emphasizes the certainty of its future occurrence. Edward Young wrote, we must note again how impressive this fact was to Isaiah. He spoke of the birth as though it had already occurred, even though from his standpoint it was yet to take place in the future. So he speaks of it as though it has already happened, which underscores the certainty of it. And I think drawing from the broader witness of Scripture, we can say that it underscores the historicity of his birth, um, it, it took place at a particular point in time, and this does help us to understand something about true biblical Christianity. It's not built, built, built on speculation or conjecture or guesswork, but on facts. It was a supernatural birth. He was born in a particular place at a particular time, and we read about the fact of his death, the fact of his resurrection, the fact that he will come again. Uh, Christianity rests on these, these pillars of reality. Now, in, in terms of the context, it's helpful to note that this, uh, this profound prophetic reality it came at a particular point in time in the midst of what could be called troubling times. Uh, internationally, there was a growing threat of the Assyrians, uh, the external threat, of, as one put it, of Isaiah. Isaiah's day was the militant Assyrian Empire rising to power in the east. And then there was also trouble religiously. There was great rebellion against the people, against God on, on, the, on the part of his people. If you back up to uh, verse 19 and 20 of the previous chapter, you get some sense of this. Um, Isaiah writes, when they say to you, and, and, and they would be those who are in rebellion, to you would be the remnant, the true people of God. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spirits, 
who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, it's because they, they have no dawn. And if you get a chance to go back and read Isaiah chapter 1, you'll, you'll see that Isaiah is dealing with the people who are, are rebellious. So it's troublesome times to the people of God. And, and as one put it, in the midst of troublesome times, they must determine where their faith will lie and who are they going to listen to, who are they going to rely on. The question forced upon Judah by this threat was one of trust. In, in what will God's people trust for salvation? In human strategies of self-resolve or in prophetic promises of divine grace? And one commentator on Isaiah put it like this, the eye of faith looks at all this, it looks at what is going on in the world, doesn't deny that, but it affirms that real though it is, it's not the real reality. As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. As they look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dream shattered and conclude that God has forgotten them, or are they to, rec to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises and to make great affirmations of faith. Isaiah insists here that hope is a present reality, part of the constitution of the now. The darkness is true, but it is not the whole truth and certainly not the fundamental truth. So the promise of the birth of this child, it comes to the, the people of God in troublesome and uncertain times. Now I find, I find that to be very applicable because it's always troublesome times, right? When is it not troublesome times? There's always concern internationally. There's always concern religiously. Sometimes there's concerns in our own family. It's always troublesome times. And so it makes it very applicable to you and I. The birth of this child is presented as the source in the context here of true joy and gladness. Notice verse 3. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, and part of that will be because a child is to be born. Uh, he is the source of true light in the midst of darkness. Back in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And just to kind of get to the text itself, the, the fact that the government will rest on his shoulders draws our attention to his rule and, and his dominion. His shoulders are symbolic of bearing rule. One wrote upon this child, all the responsibilities lies. Edward Young, in his helpful commentary, wrote, Isaiah had earlier inveighed against child rulers. Here, however, not only is the child to be the ruler, but the entire responsibility for the good administration of the government is said to rest upon his shoulders. The child is to be a king, a ruler, a sovereign. All the world is subject to the rule of this child. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. World powers were threatening the very existence of the people of God. The government of the child is a spiritual rule, but for that very reason, more, more embracing and worldwide. You recall the New Testament, Jesus um, said um, his kingdom was not of this world. So this kingdom will come to full display and full fruition commensurate with the return of the person of Christ. And then in writing, a child is born to us. To us, Isaiah, he's including himself in this remnant, uh, whose faith and trust is in the character and the accomplishments of the Messiah. So what I'd like to do in our, our time remaining this morning is occupy our minds with this fourfold description of the child that is to be born. And, and the thought would be that the, 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 the child is worthy to bear the names, that they're accurate descriptions 
of his being and character, that they bring out to us what he becomes to us by means of a living relationship to him. So we'll just kind of flow through these four accurate descriptions of his character. First of all, he's referred to, at least in the New American Standard translation, as a wonderful counselor. And the challenge here is whether these words should be taken separately or together. Uh, the New American Standard, the ESV, have the term wonderful modifying counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. Uh, the King James or the New King James or the older ASV take them as distinct and different designations. He's wonderful and then he's a counselor. Now, wonderful counselor certainly gives a, a good sense, but just for, for your information, it's helpful to note this term wonderful. It's not an adjective, which we usually think of as a descriptive term, but rather it's a noun. So I'll just kind of, I'll take these two terms in order and, and convey a sense of what I, I think the text is saying here. First of all, this term wonder, it means that which is extraordinary and or incomprehensible. Extraordinary and incomprehensible. Edward Young writes, the root of the term occurs in Psalm 78:12, where we may obtain an idea of its force. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. The writ is used to describe the miracles which God performed in Egypt, namely the dividing of the Red Sea, the safe crossing of the Red Sea, the leading by the pillar of cloud and fire, the cleaving of the rocks in the desert, and the providing of water. So Exodus 15, 11, who is like thee among the gods, O Lord, who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. Psalm 77, 11, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord, surely I will remember thy wonders of old in Psalm 89.5, and the heavens will praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. It's, it's interesting to note it's also found in Judges 13.18. That's what a, an angel appeared to Manoah, the father of Samson. And let me just kind of refresh your memories here. Um, Judges 13.15, leading up to Judges 13.18, reads, Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you. A kid here refers to a young goat. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the kid with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, that the angel of the Lord attended in the flame, excuse me, ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. So the name of the angel is, is wonderful. Now, it makes sense to me that this could be regarded as a theophany, that is an appearance of the being of God, because their response was to fall on their face. And also the word incomprehensible, or the NIV, beyond understanding, that's an expression of deity. His understanding is infinite. Um, Edward Young wrote, Judges 13, 18, where the Lord replies to Manoah that his name is wonderful, that is incomprehensible to man. This is a clear indication of the deity of the angel. The Old Testament usage of the word compels us to the conclusion that it here designates the Messiah not merely as some extraordinary, but as someone extraordinary, but as one who is in his very 
being in person a wonder. He is that which surpasses human thought and power. He is God himself. To designate the child with the word wonder is to make the clearest attestation of his deity. So the child is presented here as a wonder. He does do things that are extraordinary that are incomprehensible to human reasoning. This is a designation of his deity, that is of his godness, of the being of God. And um, this, this does correspond to the, the teaching in the New Testament with respect to his character and what he accomplishes. Just to give you an example or two, in John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the idea is that all the perfections of deity, without any sort of qualitative reduction, reside in the person of Christ. He is God intrinsically, but he's also God manifestly by virtue of the works that he performs. And a little bit of overlap here with this title, Mighty God, that we'll get to in a few moments. But in Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, this is by Jesus, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, or in him all things continue. So he created the totality of the universe, and he sustains the totality of what he created. He's the power of cohesion in the universe. And as one has put it, that's why it's a cosmos and and not a chaos. And we read in the New Testament of his power, the winds and the sea obey him. He has power over evil spirits. When he casts out demons, there's never a doubt about the outcome. It's not like a couple of guys are arm wrestling and, and, and one fella exerts almost all of his energy, just barely one. You never see that kind of conflict with demons. He, he, there's an authority and a power he demonstrates over evil spirits. Uh, Young summarizes, to designate the child with the word wondrous, to make the clearest attestation of his deity, the position of this word as the first in the series, that's the first in the sentence, it's striking. His name shall be called Wonder. We are brought head on as it were, with God himself as we hear the names of the child. It is our first encounter with him. All the following designations are influenced by or stand under the shadow of this first majestic name. The child who is born is wonder or wonderful. Well, relatedly to that, and kind of secondly under this heading, because he is a wonder, therefore, that conditions our understanding of his ministry as a counselor. He is, as the uh, New American Standard puts it, a wonderful counselor. The designation immediately puts his counsel in a completely different category, and there was need for that kind of wisdom because he was to be the eternal messianic king, so he needed a unique kind of wisdom. One says it requires wisdom such as no mere man possesses. The counselor himself must for that reason be a wonder in order that he may establish and administer the kingdom. So wisdom and the ability to give counsel were necessary for a king, and especially for the eternal king on David's throne. So he was a wonder. His understanding is infinite. And another um, messianic passage in Isaiah would be chapter 11 and verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So David was anointed by the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill his ministry, but the Messiah here is much more richly endowed. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Um, This kind of wisdom is characteristic of the being of God. In Isaiah 28, 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, who's made his counsel wonderful and, and his wisdom great. 
um, Young noted there's a, a certain uniqueness about the word, that is this word counselor. It suggests that this one has no need of being surrounded with counselors or advisors, as is the case with mere human kings. And you remember David had Ahithophel as one of his counselors, and it's, real, it's wise for you and I to get counsel uh, from time to time. There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, but such was not the case with this particular king. And again, this is, this is verified in the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So his character as God qualifies him in this capacity. And you might think, uh, recall the book of Revelation, there's letters to seven churches, and Christ is in the midst of each of these churches. And in each case, you'll find a repetition of the word I know. It occurs in each time, with each time with respect to every church. Like, I know your deeds, I know your tribulation, which is to say he is fully aware of everything that is going on in every church. He didn't need a, a committee to report to him what was going on at the church at Laodicea or the church at, at Sardis. He knew what was going on, and he knew exactly what counsel to impart for them to come into conformity with his holy will. Now, his wisdom is understood in a unique and glorious sense as it relates to his mission of salvation. He's an infinitely incomparable wise counselor. And this wisdom is in a unique category when it comes to his purpose for coming into the world, which is the salvation of souls. That's the fundamental issue. So in Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus Christ began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. He, he knew why he came into this world. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're, you're stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. So he knew the necessity of the cross as the basis for the salvation of the people whom the Father had given him. And it's interesting how the Apostle Paul writes about this in, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this unique wisdom, the wisdom of the cross and how the world views it. He says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, so the depth and the glory, the uniqueness of his wisdom is especially display, displayed in the necessity of the cross and what he accomplished for the salvation of souls. The whole redemptive enterprise of the substitutionary death of Christ in behalf of sinners, that's foolishness to the world, but to us who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God, and it's the glory of God, and it's the power of God. So he is a wonderful counselor, filled with wisdom. Secondly, and relatedly, he is referred to here as the mighty God. This fits in, of course, with the idea that he is a wonder. And to quote again from Isaiah 11:2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the sense of this term is having great power and authority or military leadership. 
power and authority or military leadership. It's presented as an attribute of God fighting for his people. Psalm 24, 8, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the, the Lord mighty in battle. In Jeremiah 32, 18, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repayeth the iniquities of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Host is the armies that God commands. Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of, of, of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So this is what causes him to be held in awe. He is a, a wonderful counselor, but he's also a mighty God. And this is why we can say, as a people of God, through God we shall do valiantly, and it is his, he will tread down our enemies. Now, the, the child is not only also... He's not only, a, not only a wonderful counselor, therefore, but he's a mighty God. And again, the New Testament signally brings this out as well, just to give you some examples. Uh, the resurrection from the dead, as you know, it's regularly ascribed to God the Father. But the resurrection is proof of the power of Christ as well. In John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So he had the power to raise himself from the dead, which is, again, a, a part of his unique deity. Also, he is regularly presented as having absolute authority and power over demonic forces. I mentioned that. Then thirdly, he has absolute, complete power over diseases and we see him over and over the God in the gospels healing people and and you'll notice the, the pattern of his healing it's always immediate and complete and sometimes it's stunning it, you know it's never check back in a couple weeks and see if your back is still bothering you it's never that kind of a thing it's an immediate it's it's it, many times it is stunning and it's complete he has absolute power over diseases then also his power is demonstrated in in the judicial realm in in the return and just listen to these words from second Thessalonians chapter 1. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Additionally, this, this power uh, that, it, that resides in the person of Christ, this is really what engenders heartfelt worship and praise and adoration. Why do we praise and adore the person of Christ? One of the reasons is because of this power that he possesses as the mighty God. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 5. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every creator 
created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So this is what thousands and thousands of angels, that they acclaim the Lamb worthy of the sevenfold tribute, power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. So just the, the perception of this uh, perfection evokes the worship of the people of God. Well, then additionally, this power is especially displayed, the power, he is the mighty God, it's especially displayed in his victory on the cross. Now, I know we just touched on that a moment ago, but listen to this, John 16, 33, Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. I have had victory over the world. D.A. Carson comments on this. The verb indicates victory. Jesus has conquered the, the world in the same way that he has defeated the prince of the world. Jesus' point is that his death, by his death, he has made the world's opposition pointless and beggarly. The decisive battle has been waged and won. The world continues its wretched attacks, but those who are in Christ share the victory he has won. They cannot be harmed by the world's evil, and they know who triumphs in the end. So the victory of the cross is not only a function of wisdom, but it's a function of power as well. And the absolute victory over, um, over, the, over the world and the powers of darkness, this feeds into your assurance of salvation in mind, the absolute victory of the person of Christ on the cross. Romans 8 elaborates a bit on this, this the victory that is ascribed to the, the cross. It says, what, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that's to his death. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake, we're being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be aided able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So his victory over the cross, it assures us that there's no force that will impinge upon the certainty of our eternal salvation. So he is presented here, the child that is born is presented as being the mighty God, and then also the eternal father, the eternal father. The word father here uh, designates a quality in the Messiah, a quality in the Messiah with respect to his people. That is, um, he acts to them like a father. In our culture, you might have heard somebody say, referring to a person other than his father, an uncle or a teacher or a mentor, that um, he was to me like a father. That is, he exhibited those qualities that we associate with a father. The, the term eternal indicates there's no limitation with respect to the duration of this kind of relationship. Um, our Lord acts this way for all of those that he came to save. Uh, the quality of fatherhood is defined by the term eternal. This Messiah is eternal father. Kyle and Dalich write the title eternal father 
designates him, however, not only as the possessor of eternity, but as the tender, faithful, and wise trainer, guardian, and provided for his, that he's provider for his people, even in eternity. So this would include things like reproof, because Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father, the son, in whom he delights. But I especially think it would include those qualities that travel in the orb of compassion and caring. Psalm 103.13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on, on those who fear him. Our, our Lord's ministry, I think, as a shepherd is indicative of this. And, and you know this text, but from Psalm chapter 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He, he leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over, or runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the New Testament, this, this same title fits in with the kind of ministry that is ascribed to our, our Lord, I think especially as our eternal Father. He refers to himself in John chapter 10 is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, he was a hireling and not a shepherd who was not the owner of the, the sheep. Beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling. He's not concerned about the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I, I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So there is, a, there is a care and a concern, an ongoing care and concern for his people as a father would for his son. I was reading um, in Spurgeon's lectures to my students and he writes that um, there, was a, there was a dog which was in the habit of coming through the fence and scratching in my flower beds to the manifest spoiling of the gardener's toil and temper, referring to himself, I think. Walking to the garden one Saturday afternoon and preparing my sermon for the following day, I saw the four-footed creature, rather a scurvy specimen, and having a walking stick in my hand, I threw it at him with all of my might, at the same time giving him some good advice about going home. Now, what should my canine friend do but turn around, pick up the stick in his mouth, and bring it and lay it down at my feet? wagging his tail all the while in expectation of my thanks and kind words. Of course, you do not suppose that I kicked him or threw the stick at him anymore. I felt quite ashamed of myself, and I told him that he was welcome to stay as long as he liked and to come as often as he pleased. Now, the connection may a little be precarious here, but the idea is that God will always receive us. He will always accept us. Christ, as our Father, has compassion and mercy and grace upon us. We are always welcome to him. Well, then lastly, and this is really a precious description, I think, he, he becomes to us the Prince of Peace, an eternal Father, but the Prince of Peace. Um, John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, uh, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do, I, um, do not let your heart be troubled, um, nor let it be fearful. So this is a, a peace that only comes through Christ. And, and I don't think this is, it could be, so I'm, I'm not real, real um, uh, definitive on this. It could be objective peace, but I think the fundamental emphasis here is it's subjective peace. It's 
I got peace like a river kind of peace, the serenity of soul in the heart. The world knows nothing about this. They, they don't know any in this peace at all. They can't give it. It's promoted and produced in the soul by the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. And, and as you know, um, one of the most glorious things about this peace, it's not tied to external, external circumstances. In fact, Paul and in, in Colossians 3.15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule, or let the, let the peace of Christ umpire in your heart. Now, if you're a believer, you already know this, and you've already experienced peace. You've had turbulence of soul, and you've prayed, and you've cast your care upon him, and you experienced this calmness and peace of soul. Nevertheless, uh, you might be thinking, well, you know, I have more turbulence in my soul than I, than I should have. Is there anything else that I, I should think in this connection? And, and one help to facilitate the um, experience of this peace, I think, is the very next verse in Colossians chapter 3. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And, and the word of Christ, I, I, I think in the, I think, Eventually, it's all of Holy Scripture because Holy Scripture is the unfolding drama of redemption. It's a book about the person of Christ. We read about him everywhere. And, and the idea is that we need to slow down and have sustained thought over some particular attribute or accomplishment of the person of Christ. It's sort of like when you, if you're a tea drinker, the longer you leave the tea in the water, the stronger it gets. Uh, steeping is the idea of to extract by soaking. And the longer you soak your soul in the truth of the word of God, the more you will feel the reality and the force of the peace of Christ in your soul. So I think one of the great benefits that of having Christ as our Savior, he is, a, he is an eternal father, but he's also the prince of peace. So through the person of Christ, he becomes all these things to us. He is our wonderful counselor. He is our mighty God. He is our eternal father, and he is our prince of peace. And let us pray, shall we? Father, we do thank you for the provision that you have made for our souls through your son. We, we thank you that you have not only delivered us from eternal destruction, but also in this life we have a, a living, blessed, glorious communion with one who is a wonder, uh, one who is a wonder through and through, one who is full of wisdom, uh, one who has the power to accomplish his purposes, one who will always be for us, an eternal father, one who provides real deep peace of soul by the Spirit through his word. So we thank you for this provision you have made for us. I pray it would be instructive to our hearts and our minds and helpful. Um, and we, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.